is uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben Loftus Cheek, and you're listening to the London, the London is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode of podcasting on the London is Blue podcast universe network. I don't know, but that's kind of what we're calling it at this point. We were calling this previously the blueprint, but our friend Gary Hayes, uh, you know, who has been on this before, also on the Chelsea podcast, is doing something a bit of a larger project. So we're, we've had to change the name of this, but this is the Tinkerman episode two, even though it's the first time we're calling it this. But got Joe Tweeds here, and we're talking about the whole month that's passed really for Chelsea. And you know, it feels like we haven't played in forever, Joe, just to do the international break. But we're gonna take some time. Just as you set up in the blueprint previously, now that Tinkerman talking about the tactics, talking about the specifics of what we've seen on the pitch and really trying to take a larger view of it versus the match to match reactionary conversation that we typically have. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think I, I probably speak for the masses here when I say that the international break was just, I mean, three games into the season and we're already international break. We've got injuries coming back from it. It just seems like international football is is all-consuming at the moment. And I know there's a, a wider conversation about moving the World Cup every two years and all this sort of stuff. And I don't know, I still think that sort of in the pandemic or coming out of the pandemic or whatever phase of that you're, you're in, the focus on player welfare seems to be at an all-time low in terms of the, the scheduling of games and the number of fixtures that these top-level players are supposed to play. So be glad to get back into the, the swing of, of club football. Um, but yeah, that, that international break, it, it feels like it sort of derailed a, a really promising start for Chelsea. And hopefully we'll touch on some of those uh, interesting points over the next hour or so. Right. Well, we are going to get into a couple of topics. Again, this is one of our podcasts that we have on the London is Blue podcast podcast universe come up with a cool name i i want to take the marvel cinematic universe and apply it to like what we're doing here but maybe it's not as grand joe but i'm sure people can come up with something (laughs) can come up with something fun for us to use but again today we're going to get into themes over the last month of those first three games uh, you know that we've we've played four because we've got the, the super cup in there as well but we're going to talk about the impact of Lukaku coming back. We're going to talk about the back three, or as Pep would say, why Chelsea play so good. Thomas Tuchel's risk of appetite, or appetite risk, rather. And then answer a handful of questions that you submitted right before the door shut on this script so that we can get some listener engagement as well. But, Joe, let's just jump right in. We want to talk about Lukaku coming in, club record signing, how has his presence affected us in games so far from what you've had a chance to see looking through some of the data, rewatching a few of the last uh, the last three matches? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple of interesting facets here, Dan. You, you've kind of got uh, the effect that he's had in possession, the effect that he's had out of possession. And then I think also just the, the kind of role that he's sort of playing in the squad at the moment. I think those three are certainly interesting to look at. So in possession, I think probably we'll start there as that's been probably yeah, probably the most obvious area that he's he's impacted the club. Now, when we kind of talk about the the attacking phase of play here, generally I, I like to look at it, and I think it, it's it's kind of taught as well that you look at sort of uh, width, depth, and also the sort of unpredictability of, of your attacking patterns. So when we talk about width, we're talking about essentially trying to make the, the pitches as wide as possible to stretch teams and to make them feel uncomfortable defending in larger spaces than what they're accustomed to. You'll notice certainly with Chelsea this season when teams will play with a back three or back five that they want to try and keep that as narrow as possible. They don't want to be stretched. They don't want to be pulled into, into wide areas. Same with a back four. Um, and I think that that probably is where 
Lukaku's sort of immediate impact has, has come from. Um, we look at the Arsenal game, and I want to focus on none in particular, because I think as debuts go, that's as close to a perfect debut as you can get from, from Lukaku there. The way that he was almost a, a magnet, and I think that the term that I'm I'm sort of uh, coining here around that is, is hostile occupation. Um, you know, it's it's not just him pulling onto a single player. It's, you know, you look for the goal, the amount of players in him or around him, I should say, um, when he lays that ball off and then makes the run, he's, he's dragging in three, four, five players. And I think he has that uh, magnetism that a Didier Drogba has, that a Diego Costa has, whereby every single player in that back line has to be aware of where he is on the pitch. And I think that personally, in terms of, of the width aspect, now that Chelsea seem to be playing with wingbacks who are higher and wider, drawing in players, making them play more narrow, making them almost subconsciously gravitate towards Lukaku because he's such a, a, a presence there, that immediately, I think, is giving Chelsea an advantage on that, on that width dimension. Um, you know, his ability to, to just draw players towards him, to occupy an entire back four. And I use that term, occupy, a lot when I talk about really great sort of spearhead centre-forwards. Dropper may be the best exponent of that in Chelsea's history, his ability to, to pull onto a full-back, to switch between centre-backs, to really just occupy a back four, for want of a better phrase. I think that is what we're seeing with Lukaku. Um, and we're talking about, about depth. I think this has been probably the, the biggest issue that Chelsea have maybe had over the past few seasons without having that elite centre-forward. Now, when we're talking about depth, we're talking about the ability to almost stretch and, and confuse and pull teams on sort of a vertical axis. So, you know, we're looking at Lukaku's ability to run in behind, his ability to come short, his ability to play on the shoulder there. So when you factor in that he is kind of almost within the first two games, certainly Arsenal and Liverpool, he is creating um, sort of different problems, both in terms of width and in terms of, in terms of depth as well. Those are, I think that is where we're starting to see some of the spaces open up for, for Chelsea there. And the last part really on, on that first initial front there, Dan, is, is around the, the sort of unpredictability factor. I would say probably post-Costa, Chelsea have been a quite predictable team in attack. Um, very pattern-oriented, very much deliberate uh, in the way they build up through the phases. Certainly when it comes to attack at times, you can see the, the, the machine parts working, the cogs turning on what Chelsea want to do. And... As much as having great players can can overcome being a fairly predictable team and attack, um, having that element of unpredictability, I think that is also the thing that Lukaku has has added in possession. You know, we can now play long into his into his feet. We can ping a ball into his chest. You know, we can play over the top. He can play different angles. He can drop into different pockets of space. Um, and it's almost that ability to stretch teams on a sort of like a multi-dimensional um, sort of access. That is, again, when it comes to the unpredictable unpredictability factor that he adds. We're not just having to build up incredibly patiently from the back through midfield and looking to, to create the, not necessarily the perfect goal, but having to work incredibly hard to get the ball into the final third and maybe taking more touches or playing more passes or or spending more time circulating the ball around the back and, and in the midfield than we want to. Now we have that ability and that option to punch the ball into Lukaku early, whether it is in the air, whether it's to his chest, whether it's to his feet, knowing that we can actually then get bodies around him and start that second wave of the attack quicker. It's not three, four, five, six, seven passes to then play into Havertz who's dropped into a, a pocket of space. You can see now that Azpilicueta, Rudiger, 
Christensen, even Jorginho, Kovacic, etc. That second or third pass that they were maybe played to a wing back or back to a centre back, they're now playing around the corner or playing first time into into Lukaku's uh, sort of presence, you could say. So I think from that perspective, when we're looking at the the possession and how he's actually impacting that from a from a positive standpoint, it is I would say probably the the the, the kind of those three facets: the the width, the depth, the unpredictability. Um, and just that that overall presence that I think he has to the team. To, you know, Tuchel often uses the term reference point to describe him, and you know that spearhead, that reference point. I think that is going to be the the crucial um, sort of terminology that we'll use going forward. But certainly in possession, that for me is has been where he's been key. And hopefully, again, the more he plays with his teammates, the more he becomes accustomed to the system, the the patterns of play that should become crisper and I think he'll become even better over the, the course of the season. Well, we saw in that Arsenal match in particular that he had received, I think, 22 balls into him. And I think the next closest was Mount insane, at seven. Yeah. It was just an unreal type of stat. And then you looked at, I think he was fifth overall in terms of uh, ball carries for that match as well with a, a total of 11. And he really drifted far out to that you know right side. So you talk about the, the width coming from that. Yeah. You know, he was kind of pulling people out of position position is really making it hard on a makeshift arsenal defense but then we had a chance to see him go a little bit more one-on-one with a Virgil van dyke who's still getting back up to fitness and you know we saw maybe a little bit more combative elements of that in the first half before the reese james red card changed that yeah. a little bit but in general it seemed like he you know maybe on the day you know, it was like a, a it probably would have gone down to a decision if it was a a, a puncher's bout, as it were. But uh, if it had been maybe the full 90, we would have had a chance to maybe shade it in Lukaku's favor on the day. Yeah, and I think the interesting point, certainly first half, I, I felt we could have actually, although I think maybe the game was quite balanced in terms of in terms of how it was going, we certainly created or had the opportunity to to have the better opportunities. And you know, watching the the game back, and actually, sadly, on a, on a third watch of the of the Liverpool game, it's kind of interesting to see that you know Van Dijk, who yeah, he's such an imposing and physical figure. That the opportunities that Chelsea did have came from slight missteps. So I'm not going to say that they're mistakes from Van Dijk because that they you know they're, they're sort of not really massively and, and gratuitously obvious. But I think that there's an element of him knowing where, where Lukaku was and, and trying to step out and maybe trying to to intercept or maybe do things that he necessarily wouldn't because of the, the Lukaku factor around him. There's certainly, I think, one of the chances I think Lukaku maybe had to slip someone in. I think also Mason and, and Kante and Havertz had similar opportunities. But it's interesting to see that, that that area of the pitch at Liverpool are typically incredibly strong in, particularly just, just ahead of their centre-backs. That was where some of these opportunities were coming from. And although, again, it may not be the most obvious thing in the world to state, but just, you know, Lukaku's kind of presence alone, his physicality, his ability, his pace, his ability to get in behind, but also to hold the ball up. It was kind of noticeable that actually there were some some sort of previously kind of maybe not necessarily unseen flaws in Liverpool's um, sort of structure, but there was definitely a way that he was he was exposing those. I think more than more than people kind of remembered on on a first viewing. So yeah, definitely a heavyweight clash. And I think yeah, again in terms of the the points decision, probably goes either way depending on whether you have a scouse accent or not. Um, but I do think that it was a it was a better performance. I think watching it the second time around. Well, that, that's always the important part of this too is that there's a value to after the day after the result is known going back to 
put the little tick boxes together to gather your notes and really understand what actually happened on the day versus the in the moment reaction because typically you're balancing the twitter engagement you've got your chat group open that you're talking to <laughs> you're watching the game maybe you're also kind of trying to balance a beverage and all of that as well and look there's a lot of responsibility when you're watching a match and so uh, potentially you need to watch it back again to capture all of the the great detail one of the things that we, we talked a lot about like what happens in possession but i think out of possession is another element that lukaku brings as well what is he doing when we don't have the ball you know we as Chelsea doesn't have the ball and I know that Lukaku has kind of talked about in the last couple of weeks about what the difference is playing on a side where it's actually not a counter-attacking team you know we're, we're playing with one that really is kind of pressing from the front wants to control the game which is a bit of a different shift for him with how he played at Inter and how he played you know previously it's sometimes uh, at either Everton or at United. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting point that you make there, Dan. Um, you know, I think he he was very open about saying the transition from a Conte-style system, which is very much counter-punching, playing on the counter, um, him almost always being in the position to launch that counter-attack versus the the way that Chelsea play sort of under Tuchel, which is a lot more proactive, certainly when it comes to the, the front three, when it comes to counter-pressing, when it comes to trying to regain possession. And... I think the interesting thing for me, and again, this is certainly something that comes through on multiple viewings. I think at the moment, this is going to be the biggest point of adjustment for, for Lukaku. Um, I think when I watch him, I see him trying to, to coordinate the press. You know, he's sort of telling people where to be and where to move, rather than maybe being the guy who is, is spearheading the press himself. And when you watched um, Kai Havertz in particular last season under Tuchel, that ability to, to counter-press and to lead the press in many uh, respects with Mason Mount and, and Timo Werner was was kind of an underrated facet of his game. And it's interesting to me that, you know, that particularly I would say the, the second half against Arsenal, I felt we started to lose a bit of control of the game, um, particularly in, in central areas. And again, I felt when I was watching a Liverpool game as well, that Kante and, and Jorginho were, were probably sort of getting beaten a fair bit in terms of um, just sort of midfield duels and physicality in midfield. And it wasn't necessarily, I think, the best showing from from them, but both in, in terms of the Arsenal game and, and the Liverpool game. Arsenal game was turned by by bringing Kante onto the pitch and the Liverpool game, I think, obviously turned with the 10 men, but also Kovacic played particularly well, I think, second half. But the the thing that, that to note there is that this this system is is predicated on all of the parts doing their job and working harmoniously. Mm -hmm. And I think when you start to see Lukaku, and again, this isn't a criticism of him, I think this is just going to be something that takes time. When you're not a part of a cohesive press, when you're not the, the you know, leading the press in the front that, that maybe he should be, or, you know, from what we've seen from other players, the way that that then cascades down to the rest of the team, you know, Jorginho and Kovacic don't quite have the time to, to set in midfield against Arsenal. Uh, Kante, you know, if he was pressing or Jorginho was pressing, we were getting caught in 1v1 situations. We were getting caught in, in, in isolated situations. These are the situations that we haven't seen under Tuchel. And I think, you know, the biggest biggest change tactically that he's made is being able to, to make that midfield area compact, to make that midfield area smaller, to give Jorginho, Kovacic, Kante less ground to cover, less, less to worry about in many respects. I think now that you don't have necessarily have that same cohesiveness, that same sort of uh, cogent sort of pressing from Mount and, and, and Akaku and Havertz at the moment, 
you're seeing that teams are being able to bypass that very quickly and that gives them an opportunity to to run at Chelsea's midfield and to stop running at Chelsea's Chelsea's back three. So when we're talking about out of possession, when it comes from a defensive standpoint, when it comes to turnovers, that will be for me the biggest area that I think Romelu has to has to look into adjusting to and the sooner that he can get into the the, the rhythm and the flow of how to press and how to counter press at Chelsea, I think the sooner we'll look to being a little bit more solid than what we're used to seeing, as I say, particularly second half against Arsenal, that was concerning for me, the way that we were getting bypassed, the way that we were letting Jorginho and Kovacic be drawn into huge areas of, of space. And again, you know, this is being overcritical, but I think most fans would acknowledge that they're not the best defensively in those one-on-one -on -one situations where there's tons of space. But you want to give them the protection of the wing-backs around them, the back three being in position, not having to, not having to defend on the transition, you know, letting them almost return to those positions and, and have a static kind of base to start from when they defend so they can pick the moments to intercept or to engage. I think the, the rush that we're seeing a little bit in midfield at the moment on the counter and in transition is, uh, is a little bit due to the fact that I think the front three are not necessarily pressing in the, in the same manner that we saw last season. So, yeah, I mean, you know, these, these are situations that we've seen under Lampard. We've seen them under Sarri. Um, how, you know, getting isolated in certain areas is problematic for Chelsea. Um, but interesting to, to note, certainly when it comes to the, the way that this team, I think the team strength is in the collective, it is in the structure that Tuchel has, has implemented. And for all the positives that I think Lukaku is adding in, in possession, um, his, his reference point feature as a centre-forward, the way that he will have to adapt, I think, to press, to counter-press, to not just be somebody there to spring a counter-attack, to be the guy that, you know, as soon as he win the ball back, we get, you know, we launch it up to Lukaku. He's positioning himself in the best place possible to receive the ball. He's now got to adjust and actually start trying to be a player that presses because without that um, initial press, you could say, from the front three, it makes it a lot harder for the double six, for the, the back three, for the wing-backs to set in their positions and have that, solidity and that sort of robust strength that we've seen under Tuchel. Yeah, it feels like to me we're still playing a bit of a balancing act. We're trying to figure out how we open up that attack. How do we embed Lukaku into the side appropriately? Yeah. I think we've seen sparks of it. You know, in, there were moments in that Arsenal match, moments in that Liverpool match where you could see the cogs starting to all go in the, the right direction and, you know, interlace and interlock appropriately. But there's definitely, I think, some of the, the pieces still where the reorganization on the pitch, as I, I think maybe you would kind of talk about it, Joe, is not happening as quickly as it needs to. But that, to me, feels more like a time scenario like it's a, a pot of sauce you just need to let it sit on the stove for a little longer so all the flavors get to know each other versus needing to add more ingredients to try to fix it this is a <laughs> gelling situation not necessarily a, a need a need to augment it yeah i completely agree though this isn't something that needs you know an absolute revolution for things to work here um there's going to be a couple of things here, certainly when it comes to the defensive adjustments for, for Lukaku and the rest of the team. It's really just a question of, of, of pressing triggers, when to go, when to sit, when to be the guy that's leading it, when to drop off, etc. Um, and I think from from that perspective that Lukaku certainly has, you know, he's got some work to do. I think he, you know, he's mentioned that this isn't a system that he's familiar with in terms of having that role. But as you say, it's, it's something that improves over time and certainly with, with coaching and with having more contact time with, with Tuchel. You know, Lukaku's probably at this point still had, you know, less than, what, 15, 20 training sessions um, back at the club since he moved back. Um, and I think it, it's going to be one of those things that will improve certainly over the, the course of the season. Um, 
when it comes to sort of the, the rest of the team and how they obviously work with them as well, you have to think, you know, for the past, I don't know how many years that these, these guys have been together now, the bulk of this, the core of this team, maybe three seasons, you could say, they've never had a centre forward like Lukaku to play with. You know, Giroud was a big, tall, physical guy. Tammy was tall, etc. But Lukaku is kind of that full package. And I think at the moment, it's like when you get a, you know, a new, uh, a new expensive gadget or you get something really fancy or, you know, for, for Christmas... The more you play with it, the more you get to know it. The Apple Watch, whatever it's going to be, the fancy thing that you have, the more you know it can, you know, the more you know that it does. I think it's a little bit the same with Lukaku here. It's going to take time for the whole team to realise all of his qualities. Um, but likewise, again, it, as I said, it, it's a two-way street in terms of you know the the the, the midfield in particular and the back three, and in, in terms of them being uh, confident and compact and, and structured. Uh, you said Lukaku, it's going to be a learning curve for him as much as it is for the rest of the guys to play with him. But I think again the the team that we have is, is intelligent enough. Tuchel is, a, is, is more than a capable enough coach to, to make it work. And I think it's just a matter of time, as you say, to let the, uh, the sauce simmer and infuse rather than going for a quick 30 minutes in a microwave. Oh, yeah. It's not a uh, pack of instant rice or anything of that nature. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't come together that quick, uh, but uh, it will be uh, very, very tasty, I think, at the end of it. So we're going to take a very, very quick ad break. We want to thank these sponsors for financially supporting the show. And we'll be back. We're going to talk about, in the words of Pep Guardiola, why Chelsea plays so good, amongst other things. So we'll be right back. All right, Joe. So the back three revolution, as we're talking about it, it's getting <laughs> hype everywhere. We've got Von Hall talking about it now. We've got uh, Komen talking about it. Everyone's talking about how, of course, Thomas Tuchel has shown the world that a back three does not have to be defensive. It can open up attacking options. And it's exciting. I think this is a moment of there was the initial recognition when Antonio Conte came into the scene at Chelsea switched to the back three the three fingers up in the air and then Chelsea's (laughs) fortune shifted that season after a a smattering against Arsenal Um, now we're in a moment where the back three has come back into vogue it was something that was instilled once Thomas Tuchel came back to you know came to Chelsea in mid-January of this year and seemingly here to stay i think for the foreseeable future because chelsea does look so damn good when we're doing it yeah that last point is is an interesting one dan because i think i'm certainly somebody who has been guilty of of maybe wanting to see a switch to a back four to play a slightly more aggressive and attacking formation but i think over the summer the the interesting guys like jules kunde the the lukaku signing um the interest in ashraf hakimi for example I think that put to bed the notion that this is going to be a you know a season where we transition to to playing in a different a different shape and you know I, th- I think of maybe I'm showing my age here but I actually remember Glenn Hoddle in the early 90s um, he actually came to Chelsea and started playing a back three so you could say that it, it's sort of in Chelsea's DNA somewhat that this is the system that we obviously have have success with and would have been fascinating actually I don't think Hoddle quite had the players. To, to play the system that he wanted. But, you know, given this group of players, it would have been interesting to see what he would have done in the first, uh, you know, when everyone was playing 4-4-T back then. But yeah, I mean, you know, at the the point that I've, I've sort of made in the script here is it's not really since the last time, you know, that we had Antonio Conte here as, as a, a formation change had such a dramatic effect on, on a football club. Um, you know, there was a time sort of pre-Tuchel or PT, as I'm referring to it, where, you know, Christensen and Rudiger, they looked like they were on their way out. They looked like they... You know, they, they weren't playing particularly well. They couldn't get into the team. They were 
uh, very, very low down the, the, the sort of centre-back depth chart when it comes to, uh, you know, sort of the two starting centre-backs. And even to a point where Cesar Azpilicueta was being phased out for, for Rhys James. So, you know, that, that sort of, the, the, you could say that almost the restorative effect of this formation has actually sort of, you know, given three players back a, a career at Chelsea. And, you know, in terms of, in terms of Tuchel here and, and a note for, for myself and for others who probably I certainly, you know, wrote off Antonio Rudiger, wrote off Andreas Christensen in a back four system to see where they are now. It's always interesting, to, I think, to get that perspective from, um, you know, fresh eyes and a different coach and a different system and, and, and to see how that potentially could unlock the, the, the sort of the, the talent or the potential within the squad. So I think that was always interesting for me to say there. But yeah, the, the back three itself, I think probably, I think last season was just revolutionary in, in how quickly it solved Chelsea's kind of def defensive frailties. And, you know, as much as I am a 4-3-3 advocate, you can't play that if you don't have the right profile of holding player. I mean, I think sure. we, we've seen that in the Premier League. That was, you know, you go back to every Premier League winning team that's, that's played a 4-3-3 or even any Premier League team winning period. They've had that ball winner in midfield. They've had that profile of player. Makaleli, Essien, Mikel, Matic for Chelsea. You know, you could go from, from you know, Fernandinho at City recently, Fabinho, th these kinds of guys to play that role in the Premier League. And as much as, as that is an unsexy type of player for, for people to see in there, it's not a, it's not a Jorginho, it's not a, a Regista, it's not a, a deep-line playmaker, a Perlo. It has traditionally been what's worked in the Premier League. So I think Tuchel coming in and realising that maybe he didn't have the the midfield players or maybe just the, the forward options, whatever, to to play that sort of system and and switching to this free central defender system that we've seen. That, yeah, I mean, when we're talking about, you know, sort of even maybe historical moments in, in Chelsea's history in a couple of years' time, that almost certainly led to to, to Porto winning the Champions League. So as a, as a starting point, you could say that the, the analysis that Tuchel did um, before coming to Chelsea with his coaching staff and, and looking at the squad, you know, go back in time as he interviews about Antonio Rudiger at Roma, talking about a back three being his best position. I think we saw Christensen's best form being in, in a back three as well. Um, Aspilicueta had great success playing in a back three. You know, it, there are fairly obvious points in these players' career that that is the system that they've they've liked playing in. So as kind of a starting point for this, this sort of conversation, yeah, it was interesting to see Tuchel sort of move in that direction. Well, it's interesting to see because there's been a lot of desire for the conversation and people focusing on the front of the pitch, right? It's, oh, we've got Lukaku, <laughs> but now we have Havertz, we have Werner, maybe we end up going to a... 3-5-2 and we then configure our midfield a little we configure our attacking options to get you know a combination of striking options up there versus the you know 3-4-3 you know that we we tend to kind of play with yeah. currently but i i think to step back when we talk about how the build-up occurs right because we yeah. now have Rudiger again kind of with his marauding runs we have <laughs> Azpilicueta with the who continues to put me to shame at 36 years old. I feel like I am just absolutely in no shape whatsoever watching the amount of runs he made, makes up and down <laughs> the right-hand side when he plays in that right center back. The Hollywood passing of Trev Jalabal we had a chance to see, and now Andres Christensen, who can step in for Thiago Silva. And again, Thiago Silva coming in last season, remarkable form that he came into but the way that christensen has taken <laughs> taken yeah. that on from his presence being here uh, is really just been exceptional to see all of them 
offer a little, you know, some different shades of what they can do. I mean, obviously, Trev Chalaba and a right center back versus Asby, different sets of options, but you you do have a flexibility within the way Tuchel sets up this back line. If he does want to change for the opposition, if he does want to add height, he's got an option there. If he wants to add a little bit more defensive rigidity or if he wants to go a little bit more attacking, he actually can impact the attacking thrust with which three he ends up picking for any yeah. particular match. Yeah, that's the the really interesting thing here is I, I think the more that I've considered and sort of looked at, at Tuchel's game model and particularly his tactical framework... I think maybe the the criticisms that I've had of Chelsea's three main midfielders over the past, I don't know how many years now, in terms of their ability to impact in all thirds, I'm not sure always now that that, is, that has been the game plan. I think that Chelsea's midfield is there to control games. It's there to to act as a, a sort of a, a satellite, to be sort of metronomic in terms of how they keep the ball moving across the back line to bring backs, how they play into forwards, etc. But their main function within the team isn't necessarily to be this sort of creative fulcrum or to be this attacking presence. It's to really sort of control and dictate and make sure that Chelsea have a, a really high quality um, possession in terms of in terms of the ball. And what we're seeing now, I think particularly this season, and yeah, it's you know, it's three games into the season and whatever, but I think that there are now what we're starting to see shades, particularly again with some of the the transfer links to players like Jules Kunde. Tuco is almost using his his centre backs as sort of uh, the the kind of attacking impetus from deep within the team. Now you look at certainly Antonio Rudiger. You mentioned his marauding runs. You know I love the fact that he even realises. You know I think I saw him in an interview saying that he runs quite funny. It is one of the funniest things to see Antonio Rudiger at full speed just hurling himself towards the opposition backline. But that as a as an example of how um, Chelsea inject attacking impetus from deep. It's difficult to, you know, if, if Rudiger bypasses uh, the press and, and that's something Chelsea can do very well by their ability to circulate possession between the, the back five and the two pivot players. But if if, two, if if Rudiger can get into those spaces, we've seen him carry the ball 30, 40, 50 metres up the pitch and then make a good pass to a, a wide player or a forward. And on the right-hand side as well, we see Asper Laqueta get into to good possessions, his ability to support, you know, that that famous cross from Arata, that angle that he gets in that area. I think we'll start to see that more with Lukaku as well. When Trevor played there against uh, against Palace, you know there were times he was popping up on the wing. He was playing like a wing back, playing in central midfield. You know the the goal. I mean, again, that that license to get into those sorts of areas, those pockets of space, and actually attack his distribution as well. I think that is going to be if he does start playing more, something that we see regularly. He he put a ball through for Timo Werner from you know the edge of roundabouts or the edge of the penalty area to, to Werner, which Werner um, unfortunately didn't convert. But that ability to, to pass, you know, I think as well, the, the ability to play into, into Lukaku's feet. And then you have that, the central, you know, defender in, in the team, Thiago and Christensen, um, both have very unique abilities on the ball. Silva's a fantastic long passer, great, great player in terms of picking up people in the final third. We're starting to see Christensen now carry the ball into midfield and show that side of his game as well. So you've got really now, I think, you know, the, the concept of these quote-unquote overlapping centre-backs that was it Chris Wilder uh, popularised, even though, you know, teams have been doing it for ages, but, you know, first person to get, that gets credit for it. You're starting to see facets of that now come into the play. And you're seeing these centre-backs almost at times sitting 10 yards outside of the penalty area, um, almost in like full-back position, supporting the wing-back, supporting the inside forward, supporting Lukaku, shifting the ball to, to the pivot in midfield. And I think, again, you know, as you're saying, in terms of how Chelsea build up through the phases, 
it's important now, and I think something that Chelsea fans will start to note, the technical quality of the centre-backs is going to be imperatively, it's going to be one of the big things that Tuchel is focusing on. And, and probably, and, and whether rightly or wrongly, the reason that, that Kurt Zuma is no longer a Chelsea player, maybe he doesn't have, obviously, have that, that sense of, of technique or style, maybe, that some of the other players had there. So I think from, from that perspective, yeah, when you know when we're in possession, you can see how how wide the centre backs or how wide the centre backs are playing, how big they're trying to make the pitch, taking it back to our sort of pre-advert uh, break there in terms of using the width and the depth, etc., creating width with your centre backs, creating pockets of space to play into your midfielders, allowing them to to have time on the ball by by stretching the, the press that's coming your way. Um, and I think given how wide that we like to be in possession, certainly from the back. Um, now we're starting to see as well more aggressive positioning from wing-backs just think back to the Arsenal game I can't remember the last time I saw Reese James you know play that high play that wide the switch was always on the space he was in and a lot of that comes from Chelsea's ability to to, to use the centre-back width to create these these sort of passing lanes and passing opportunities as well so yeah I mean yeah when it comes to to the sort of the the makeup of the team in possession I think this is going to be what we try to see going forward. We're going to see these, I don't want to call them box-to-box centre-backs, but I might have to. It might have to be something that I have to coin for this uh, the podcast in particular. But it does, in some ways, explain why Jules Koundé and his ability to carry the ball, you know, his ability to dribble, to play in midfield, to drive into midfield and, and step beyond maybe the, the pivot and have the pivot be slightly more withdrawn. I think that is certainly a way that, uh, that Tuchel is starting to use these guys. And, you know, in terms of tactical sort of um, uh, tweaks and, and, and permutations throughout the season, it'd be interesting to see how that sort of progresses because we've seen it early days. We've seen, how, I think, even against Liverpool with 10 men, we saw, you know, centre-backs getting forward, particularly well, even before 10 men in the first half. I think Rudiger had a massive, massive four in. It's becoming a part of the game now. So it'd be interesting to see as well in terms of the balance and the, you could say, the the, the relationship between the, the double pivot, the double six and the centre-backs, because I have a feeling that with Chelsea having such a technical and athletic set of outside backs, you know, Rudiger, Chalaba, even Aspilicueta, Reese James when he plays there, they're going to have time and space on the ball if they can step into midfield. And I think that's going to be one of the attacking options that we will see going forward. It's been interesting to see just how quick we can switch the overload on sides too. You, know, you talk about this idea of yeah. the box-to-box centre-back, as it were, which is a delightful little thing that we'll have to come up with some <laughs> type of visualisation for. But... This ability now with the interchange between an you know an Alonso and a, and a Rudiger and their ability to get the ball up you know very far up the pitch together, whether it's Reese James and Aspilicueta or Aspilicueta and and Cho or Aspi and Chalaba, depending upon the combination that we've seen, their ability to get the ball forward on the other side as well, and then work through as you talked about the midfield kind of how they help to support really the transition of ball you know horizontally kind of from one side to the other very yeah. quickly. I don't know. I feel like our defense is giving the opposition defense night terrors that's sending them to a psychiatrist <laughs> couch with how quickly this is happening to them. And I, I don't want to go like the hyperbolic American sports, you know, sports radio show or program type of voice too often. But like, are we, are, are, is Chelsea's defense really getting enough credit here? Like, are we getting credit for how good we actually are? Because it doesn't feel like. And we talked about in possession, but like out of possession, yeah. they're just as good too because the, the, the number of, of shot chances 
teams are getting per game, the number of expect like actual expected goals, you know, like right now on the first three games of the season, I think the expected goals sits about 3.3 in total. And uh, surprise, the only one we've conceded was a penalty to Liverpool. Otherwise, we have looked like we are giving up absolutely nothing. And Joe, I think this is the return to an era where Chelsea are just... I, I, why would you want to play them? I think every team is looking at us on their calendar <laughs> yeah. and saying, uh, damn. Okay. We've got Chelsea coming up this weekend. Uh, let's just figure out how we, we will survive because this is, this is like planning oceans 11 and I'm sorry, like, go, you know, Ole is not <laughs> mad Too cool Danny Ocean. Yeah, no, it, well, Tuchel is the one, like they would, they would ask for Tuchel because they're not going to figure out how to break in. <laughs> I like that a lot, yeah. I mean, to, to your point about credit, the the stat from last season's Champions League, what, what, was, was it four goals conceded in the whole tournament? Four goals conceded like and, and fi- uh, five minutes of playing behind. from behind the entire yeah. campaign. I, I don't think like that, that has been made enough of. I know Chelsea fans will sort of, you know, we're aware of that, but from a, a global standpoint, that statistic is will possibly never, ever get beat, particularly the five minutes one. And, you know, you're talking about credit and I don't think the players or the club will really mind. And, and as fans, to be honest, I'm not too, too bothered by it. But I think in an era where everyone is obsessed over goals and assists and how many how many goals have they scored and this, that, and the other, on the other end of the spectrum, you, you have maybe the, I don't know if it is statistically the greatest ever European Cup performance by a, by a team in terms of defensive numbers, Ever and yet it, it's barely sort of mentioned in in terms of um, any conversations really about the the, the competition this season. But yeah, uh, you know the the thing that, that I think amuses me is is when you you watch back now that the famous Guardiola interview with Rio Ferdinand and you know oh Chelsea is so good they're so compact and they have the wing backs and I can't remember what it is word for word. But that that whole kind of spiel of, of you know you have Guardiola basically telling everyone in the world that this is what Chelsea do and you still get beat 1-0 and still can't figure it out with all the, the resources you have at your at your fingertips. I think, yeah, you're right, Chelsea's... Maybe the, the respect that we, we deserve certainly isn't coming through there. But, you know, that out-of-possession stuff as well, it's not just the, you know, Rudiger rampaging forward like a lunatic in possession that that is so good about this this back-free system. You know, it, it's, it's a narrow three-man defence and it complements everyone so well. You know, it becomes a back five when it needs to be. It's a back three when it needs to be. You know, it allows certain players, and I'm looking at sort of Rudiger here, to be aggressive, to to use their natural instincts, which maybe have been costly um, at times sort of in a back four, but use those instincts to really pressure and get to grips and be this sort of chief master of the dark arts, this, this shithousery doctorate that he has you know, to, to really tap into that side of his game because he knows that when he steps out and when he engages people, it's not just a centre-back partner that, you know, possibly has, you know, runners that he's checking or is now looking to cover the space in behind. From that left centre-back spot, you've got Christensen or Silva sweeping in. You've got Alonso or Chilwell dropping back and covering him. You've got Aspilicueta stepping from the right-hand side to be more of sort of a traditional right-sided centre-back. Reese James filling in sort of at the back post there. You know, Christensen's transformation in the system as well. The, the aggressiveness we're now seeing from him, you know, the Danish Maldini or the Danish Baresi, depending on your favourite Italian uh, centre-back comparison. But his aggression, you know, his ability to now take on physical challenges and to, again, I think, again, have that confidence that he knows if he goes and contends possession and tries to win the ball back, he has 
Rudiger's pace in behind. He has Aspilicueta's defensive qualities. He has his, his wing back sweeping behind. And then you've got Aspilicueta, who, again, you know, somebody that I had written off in terms of trying to phase him out of the team. This man is evergreen. You know, he is playing as well today as he has done for Chelsea in, in years. Um, defensively, one on one, still absolutely excellent. You know, for the, the, you know, even if you take the money argument aside from Aspilicueta for what Chelsea paid for him, I still don't think he gets enough respect in the Premier League. He has been one of the best defenders, pure defenders that we've seen in the Premier League, maybe ever. I'd put him into that conversation. You know, should, should um, that be he's... another moment of the unlocking the American Colin Cowherd? Like, how much disrespect <laughs> does Cesar Azpilicueta get being one of yes. the best defenders in the Premier League of all time? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, we're pushing into the Cowherd territory there with Azpilicueta. Um, but it's it's a system that has put these guys into positions where they can now thrive and actually play their natural game and progress. And, you know, as I say, I think that the, the thing that Tuchel should be credited with is the, the sort of the, you could say the, the, the reawakening of Antonio Rudiger, the sort of the rejuvenation of Christensen and, and just rediscovering that Aspilicueta is still a top, top player. Um, you know, and... The thing, the thing would be, I mean, as much as they are playing well as a as, as a unit, as a back three, um, you know, there are games, I think, last season where we weren't even conceding shots on target. And, and there were quite a few of them as well. People weren't even shooting at Mendy at some point. So you have to really commend them there. But again, it's going back to the structure of the team that Tuchel has put in place here. You know, you have um, in in Rhys James or whoever's playing at wingback and, and Alonso and Chirwell, you've got guys who can who can fill in and play more of a fullback role when we need to. You've got, you know, finally for the first time, really since Conte's Matic-Kante pivot, we've got a combination of midfielders that, yes, if you put them in as a lone number six, they're not going to play particularly well, but in this double six formation, they're the perfect four in front of a, a you know, in front of a back a back five. You know, their, their ability to, to screen, to sit deep, to help us play out of pressure, but also just to screen the defence with the two players we have there. It's such a collective effort. You know, Mason Mount's pressing, Kai Havertz pressing, you know, the, all of the sort of the, the, the pieces moving together there. But the, the success really, as you say, of the back three, yes, in possession, we're starting to see some really interesting things. We're seeing some fascinating qualities. But if they couldn't defend, I don't think anyone would really care. I think what we're seeing again now is, is a, a unit of defenders, a group of centre-backs who think will give you different things at different times um they have different qualities you know pacey some are more um you know kind of uh you know, you know mature in their sort of defensive approach like aspilicueta and silver it's not so much about their their physical traits anymore they have that extra yard two yards in their head um but the emergence of, of or the re-emergence of christensen and now somebody like trevor chalaba coming into the frame who has that very modern skill set of yes I can do the defending, I can kick people, I can be physical, etc. But in possession, I can run the whole length for the pitch, I can ping passes, I can do this, that, the other. Um, it's going to be, I think, a really interesting thing to see how this, again, continues to develop. I don't see us moving to a back four anytime soon, although it would be interesting to see if the improvements that we've seen in Christensen and Rudiger in particular translate over to a back four um, and see whether that would be something that, that, that gives us an opportunity to, to play in a slightly different way. But I think from what you said at the beginning of this segment, Dan, I can't see us moving away from this back for any time soon because the ultimate question is, why would you? We've just won a European Cup playing it with the system. I think now what we're seeing, and certainly when we look into the next part, is how we make the necessary adjustments and tweaks um, so we can take the, the handbrake off, so we can take more risks, so we can be more aggressive 
um, against some of the teams that are playing with this sort of back 10. But from my from my perspective, I think the back three is here to stay defensively incredibly, incredibly solid. As you say, only goal we've conceded this season was a penalty, which again, you know, very, very unfortunate how that happened. I still think we're seeing the same sort of quality of defensive action. Rudiger, I think one of the challenges against Crystal Palace was outrageous. Um, but it will just be, again, it's about the collective. It's not necessarily about the individuals. Um, I think collectively that defence looks like it's going to be the uh, sort of a strength of the team going forward for, for hopefully a very long time. Well, when you consider that we have had 41 shots, 13 are allowed to be on target. So uh, teams are averaging uh, at this point, you know, less than a third of their shots are actually ending up on target. So <laughs> right now it's 0. 0.15 uh, goals uh, per shot. And then goals per shot on target, obviously 0.46. But again, a little over-indexed in the fact that Liverpool got their only goal off of 23 shots. Um, uh, just really uh, kind of just tells a completely crazy story. Um, so let's talk about the midfield, though. You kind of talked about this idea of the risk appetite and trying to kind of take the break off here. But part of that... <laughs> may come within the fact that we uh, we have, as you said here in the script, uh, called Saul, as it were. Uh, <laughs> no surprise of Breaking Bad memes or better call Saul memes. We need them. <laughs> in our lives after the Spaniard has made his way to Stanford Bridge and has done a, a fair amount of media duty already is completely winning the media game at the moment when you think about his uh oh i'm out here with alonzo with the photo of keppa as they're biking around just you know some really fun stuff but he looks like he and his media team are doing a good job of getting embedded quickly and you know we've got a box-to-box midfielder who played about seven different positions uh not you know not goalkeeper but about seven different positions for atletico madrid last season uh, most recently playing left wing back before coming to chelsea it's just really a bizarre way that he found himself here but again yeah. you know we get then we get the articles about how chelsea been monitoring monitoring the player for for years and you know 700 like, years just, yeah just like everybody has because he was uh, an elite player at a, at a top european side and i'm sure all of them keep tabs on each other but in general you know he also right before the move i don't know if you watched the the game that they were playing but he set up the own goal to, to salvage the tie because he just pinged the ball forward and had that crazy bounce off the defender's oh, head yeah. right past the keeper. Um, so he's got some really nice passing too. So I feel like we're getting a, a really a, potentially another reclamation project here where if it yeah. goes well, Chelsea are in a great position. And if not, you know, we've made a smart decision because we're only obligated for this one year trial period, as it were. Yeah, this is this is going to be an interesting one. You know, I think all of the guys on uh, on London display, we were quite adamant that we wanted to see a central midfielder come into the club at some point over the summer. And you know, coming into the last day and only having a what seems to be a half fit held together by a sort of sticky tape and Galo Kante at this point. In, you know, the early part of the season, Jorginho looking tired, Kovacic looking tired early on. There were, I think, some some pretty significant and I think you know well well founded. Um, reservations and, and worries, I would say, about, you know, the lack of numbers that we had there. And, you know, you had people pitching different players, you know, oh, you know, Reese James can play there. Well, he probably can. Trev can play there. Yes, he probably can. But, you know, to have somebody who can play there versus a specialist, you know, is, I think that that could be the difference between where Chelsea finish in the Premier League if we're competing for the title or if we're just a, a Champions League team at this point. So 
the thing with with Saul, I think I'm saying that right. I've had some uh, some advice from some Spanish speaking friends as usual. Um, so I'm not going to try the surname because that was a little bit too complicated for me. But Saul, um, this will all come down to what version of the player we are getting. And I really like the fact that he was. Um, I wouldn't say openly critical of himself, but he acknowledged that certainly the past few, I think he said the past two years, that he hasn't necessarily been playing at the level that he he was playing. When I think, you know, if you said his name a couple of seasons ago and, and tried to buy him, it would have been virtually impossible. I mean, there was a reason. Did he sign like a nine-year contract? He it was a nine-year contract with some crazy multi-hundred million pound buy, um, you know euro yeah. buyout it just uh, absolutely yeah. obscene uh, because he was he was there he it was, was that a, good he was yeah he was a member of the 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 squad and you know simeone wasn't gonna let him leave the team yeah exactly you know he had a huge contract you know i mean you know nine years is 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 big in any sport um particularly football when you know five years is, is a good length of a contract we did seven with kepa for you know amortization purposes but a nine-year contract shows you the sort of faith that they've had in him so I like the fact that he came out and said yeah you know this is this is kind of where I am and you know this is maybe what I need to do but and the big but here is if we get the the player that he can be um if he returns to that level of form and as I said this kind of box-to-box sort of midfield player a guy who I think he's often played in a 4-4-2 often played in a 4-2-3-1 etc um knows how to play in a pivot. If we get the level of player that he can be back, then, you know, I, I tweeted a little while ago, I don't think he's going to be a substitute player. You know, he he genuinely has the capabilities to start for Chelsea. And that really does put, I think, certainly a level of competition back into midfield that I don't think we've had for a long while. Um, you know, it's, it's basically Jorginho and Kovacic are the starting pair. Uh, sorry, Jorginho and Kante, the starting pair. Cover was the rotator. Um, I think now with Saul coming in, he has the ability to push everybody in that team. And I include Kante there because of maybe some fitness concerns that we see this season. But you have to think a guy here, you've already alluded to, you know, he has a great range of passing when he's on, you know, when he's at his best. Um, I like the fact that he's left-footed. I think I like the fact that that opens up certain kind of angles that you have in, mid, in sort of central areas. Um, I've tapped him as someone who... Again, very, very intelligent, a very patient player. I think he fits in both in terms of the way that Chelsea would want to be measured in build-up, but also having that ability, I think, to spark a bit more in midfield. Again, as much as I think that the midfield is is built to be stable, is built to be a you know a base for the rest of the team, I still, again, this is past preference, I still would like to see a bit more dynamism in there. I would like to see somebody who has that, that eye for the pass, who has an eye for a goal, or eye for a shot, whatever it might be. And I think, you know, when you look at Saul's career, his goals, he has that little late run into the area. He has the ability to finish. He's a bit more natural, I would say, in the final third compared to a Georgie, a Cover or a Kante. I think he just has that little bit extra class. And again, it might just be that he has, you know, that he is Spanish. He has that ability to, to find that past if we're going down sort of the stereotypical route. But his career, at least watching him back again, does show that he does have that in his locker. And, you know, as much as... Um, as Yes, you know, we need goals from 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 Lukaku. Having a player who can maybe chip in with five, ten goals in a season from midfield. Um, and I'm not including the penalties there, so apologies to Jorginho. But somebody who can chip in with those those sorts of numbers, I think, would be would be useful. Um defensively, again, I think he adds a bit of size. I'm always concerned that Chelsea's midfield is kind of like the five foot five and under club. Um 
you know, sometimes, again, you know, I, I look at the Liverpool first half. I felt we were getting bullied a tiny bit by, by Liverpool's midfield. Um, they were certainly a bit more physical than us. And again, Arsenal, when they came back into the game second half, you know, running past players, brushing past players, you know, that, that sort of thing is, is you know, it's, it's the, the kind of midfield displays that give me uncomfortable night's sleep, let's put it that way. So I think Saul was a bit more physical there. You know, he likes to tackle, he's good at intercepting. Maybe, you know, you could say he's a bit flat-footed at times, but in this system, I don't think it will be too problematic. Um, and I think, again, you know, that we're talking about a version of a player here that maybe, to, to his own words, hasn't been there for two years. I would have... I thought his form maybe dropped off 12 months, 18 months ago, but, you know, that's that's his own perception of where he is as a player. But I think coming in, Tuchel's ability, as we've spoken about with, with defenders, his ability to to rejuvenate, to to reclaim players who were once fantastic or had ability or promise. I think that is interesting, the different environment. He, he to me, looks like he suits Premier League football maybe more than Liga. He's a bit more energetic, a bit more hustle and bustle, a bit more go forward and possibly in Spain, particularly under Simeone, I think that those, the way that they play this, you know, incredibly defensive and I don't want to say waste of energy, but I mean, it's it's a huge output when they play for, for Atletico. I think under Tuchel, maybe that free, being free from some of those restraints and, and being shifted all around the pitch, hopefully that is going to be what we see to, to reclaim him. But as I say, you know, we, we're three games into the season. We have Kante injured. Um, you know, I think Jorginho said in an interview after 80, 85 minutes, I think it was at Anfield, you know, he was absolutely exhausted. And again, to bring it back to that point, this is the third game into the season of a potentially 60-plus game season. Um, and I thought Kovacic looked very tired against Arsenal, though he played well against Liverpool. So you've got three of your, your prime midfielders all showing signs of wear and tear this early in the season. Saul could play an awful lot of minutes here. I think he's a very durable player from memory. Doesn't seem to be injured that much. Always seems to be available. Um, so again, sort of, you know, closing off this one, one Dan here. I think he might start against Villa. That is my bold prediction. Um, but I think as well that if he, as I said, I've used the word if a lot here, but, it, you know, I'm not 100% sold on the fact that he's going to be returned to, the, to form. But if he does... Um, you know, he is going to, I think, play an awful lot of games for Chelsea this season. And I'm, I'm actually quite looking forward to it. Again, you know, the, the, the way that Tuchel's been with Christensen, with Rudiger, the, the, the way that Azpilicueta has seemingly come back from, from being relegated to second string. Um, if he, we can see that with, with Saul, and I think he has, in some cases, maybe a higher natural level of ability than some of those other players... If we get to, to, you know, if you get to see the player that he was, then I'm, I'm pretty excited for that. Well, when you look at the last couple seasons, just in terms of his contributions, this last year, the 2020-2021 campaign, he had 41 matches played, 30 starts. But before that, it was 47 for 47, 45 for 43, 56 for 52, 53 for 47, 48 for 40. So he has been quite the fixture in the side and to the point you made, very, very durable. And again, it is a it is absolutely an if conversation with Saul. And if it all comes good, it could be making our decisions heading into the next window even more difficult when it comes to what happens at that midfield. Uh, before we get to a couple of rapid fire mailbag questions, I know you do want to talk about the couple of ideas. So if you could kind of maybe just rattle off the if yeah. Thomas Tuchel was going to take the brakes off and you wanted to give maybe three, four suggestions for things you'd like to see him try heading into this next set of fixtures. Again, we have Villa coming up. We have our first Champions League group stage match against 
Zenit Saints Petersburg. Then we have a match against Spurs. Then we've got Villa in the Cup. And then we have more Champions League. So there's going to be a lot of opportunity to rotate the squad and experiment. But what are a couple of highlight, hey, I'd like to see Tuchel do this to see if we can maybe unlock an, an even greater ability or skill set or output from this side? I'll keep it to, to three relatively small points here, Dan. So first one, he's spoken about quote-unquote double strikers. I hate the terminology. It's just two centre-forwards. I don't know why we need to put quirky names and everything. Um, I would like to see Timo Werner play up top with, with Lukaku. I'd like to see Havertz play up top with Lukaku as the fine strikers. Um, not often you see that this season. I think that little change of pace... Um, I think we'll probably confuse teams. They're, they're very used to playing against one centre-forward, having two actual centre-forwards up there with them. And I think, again, this could be a way of, uh, quote-unquote, unlocking Werner. Um, but that would probably be the, the first one. Second one, I think, again, is probably going to be about not always playing with seven defensive players when we need to score goals against back tens. Um, you know, having maybe use of of slightly more attack-minded wing-backs or just playing wingers a bit further up the pitch or whatever it might be. You know, sometimes, I think last season when we were playing teams and it was heading towards a draw and you've got three centre-backs, you've got two defensive midfielders who are never going to score a goal, you've got two defensive, uh, you know, wing-backs and you're basically just hoping that somebody up front does something. I just want to be a little bit more aggressive, I think, sometimes against these teams. And probably the last thing I think is going to be and again, maybe this ties back into Lukaku. And I'm, I'm looking at a player like Mateo Kovacic here. We seem to be a little bit more, let's say, progressive and aggressive um, in terms of how we're passing. Kovacic's range of passing this season, he's had some really good moments, Liverpool and, and Arsenal, where he was punching the ball into, into attackers. He was playing riskier passes. He was actually taking the onus on him to be that sort of deeper lion creator. And it's not something that I've always associated with cover for me. He's always more of a ball carrier. But if he can, again, if that is a, an instruction, something that Tuchel has been working on with him, to have a, a player in midfield who can play that really nice pass between, between the lines that can break um, you know, a midfield press that can beat. You know, we know that he can dribble around the press and beat people. But if you can then find a 20, 30, 40 metre pass after that to Lukaku or switch to, to Reese or whatever it might be, that is going to take his game to the next level. So more, let's say more freedom of, of passing. It doesn't always have to be measured and controlled and, and keeping it nice and, and simple, a little bit more aggressive um, and risking the passes as well. So that, probably those those three things is, is what I think we'd, we'd like to see. But the most intriguing one and the one that Tuchel is spoken about is the quote-unquote double strikers. Well, you know, I, I like two scoops of ice cream, two strikers on the pitch at a time. Sounds delightful, depending upon who <laughs> we're playing against. Uh, what flavors? Yeah, uh, douche, uh, double, uh, probably a chocolate vanilla combo is, is probably perfect for two scoops. Um, I don't know, I don't, I mean, maybe a coffee, alternate one in there, because I just can't get enough caffeine. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if we don't have a Starbucks sponsorship soon, it's going to be problematic. Yeah, you know, they're, they're just down the road here, so maybe I should just go <laughs> knock on a door. Um, all right, so we got a ton of mailbag questions. Joe threw this out about one to two hours before we started recording, and the pod mailbag filled up, I think, within 30 seconds. So thank you, everybody, <laughs> for submitting a few. We're going to get through as many of these as we can in about 10 minutes' time. So, look, we're going to start with uh, Melina's question, which is asking... 
maybe not so typically themed on the football that we typically talk about in this podcast, but what position would Antonio Rudiger be in American football and why is it outside linebacker? And Joe, I think as we talked about before we started recording, uh, unfortunately, Melina, we, we disagree that it's outside linebacker. Yeah, I think if we were going to have a linebacker at the club, it would probably be Romelu Lukaku. I think he, mm-hmm. he, could be, he could be the perfect linebacker. But I think in this case, I think maybe, I don't know if Dan agrees or not, but I think he'd make an absolutely superb strong safety. There's a little bit of the uh, the Ed Reed about about Rudiger. You know, I think he would quite relish any receiver coming over the middle, ball slightly high. You know, targeting the ribs. I think Rudiger would make an excellent safety. I'm sure Belichick has considered it. Um, you know that he likes to to think outside the box at times. But uh, yeah, I think Rudiger Rudiger as a safety would be a very very interesting concept. Troy Polamalu without the hair, maybe. I so I went with the the cornerback mainly because you get the one on one, and I feel like he would absolutely just be chirping nonstop at the, whatever wide receiver he ends up picking up, and he would Jaylen basically Ramsey. be like the Revis, uh, you know, uh, or now Ramsey type of one-on-one, <laughs> like you are not going to catch a ball anywhere near me. So just, you know, pack it up for the day type of thing. Rudiger uh, Island is a thing. Yeah. That, um, now that could be a merch idea. Ooh, Rudiger Island. Uh, it's like the AC penitentiary uh, <laughs> yeah. meme that goes around now. Uh, okay, so Andrew had a question. How would you balance rest rotate now that the Champions League and three games a week are back? Kepa for group games. Lukaku to get midweek rest. Conte can't play three games a week either. I think we touched a little bit on this the throughout the episode, Joe, but any yeah. one specific move that you would make as it relates to the balance and the rotation? I would like to see, assuming that they're getting rotated, uh, Trev or Reese for lesser, lesser games, maybe slip into midfield at some point just to give Kante, Georgie, cover, etc. some some proper rest. Um, as much as in these games that they, you know, Georgino can get through these games walking at a walking pace and still control the game. I think sometimes giving him, a, you know, giving him cover, Kante, etc. a break would be interesting. And it'd be, again, interesting to see Reese and, and Trevor step into midfield, particularly, you know, League Cup, earlier, early rounds of the Champions League, etc. would be an interesting move for me. Um, and just in general as well, I would just like to see, again, rotation of, of certain certain players, you know, particularly, um, you said midfield. I think the wing-backs are a good opportunity to rotate. Um, and obviously the centre-backs as well. We've got enough of them this season. So, yeah, just a, a good, good, healthy rotation. But Trev and Reese in midfield would be interesting. like the sound of that. Dan Hill, not this Dan, had a question asking, you're Antonio Rudiger. Do you re-sign with Chelsea? Chelsea or move somewhere else and I had to think about this one Joe yeah. I think if I were Chelsea and could get him on favorable terms I would want to try to resign Antonio Rudiger he's definitely evolved into being uh, in that conversation of some of the best center backs in the world football all of our football at the moment but if I'm Antonio Rudiger and I'm thinking about my future thinking about the injury pass that I've had previously thinking that now I've now won a Champions League I probably would be okay with a high dollar move as a free agent in the January window to secure the future for me and my family. But that that's probably how I would view it if I was Rudiger. Yeah. hundred percent Dan. there. I mean, as you say, you have two views, you know, you're, you're playing in a system and under a coach who's got the best football out of you in your entire career. You are probably among the best central defenders in world football at the moment. Um, you know, all of that sort of aside in terms of, of, of the playing side, then as you say, you have to weigh that up on the financials. I know from from sort of, you know, what I've read in the press from Rudiger's agent that this next contract is is the pension for Rudiger. It's the moneymaker. So do you then play out the rest of the season and go to PSG on £400,000 a week or whatever it might be? Go to buy, you know, go back to Bayern Munich, have a, 
you know, a, a nice life in Germany, you know, be, be, be you know, this, the, the big important German player on an absolute ton of money. Um, it'll be interesting. I, I have a feeling, again, that this is just really going off his agent that I think he might take the money route and play out this season and then go and sign a huge contract. Um, I do also have a feeling that given how well he's played, if Chelsea and you know, if Chelsea were close to signing him, I think he would have signed by now. Um, you know, year left, you know, it's less than a year left now on his contract. I think Chelsea would have locked him up um, in the summer, given how well he had played back in the last season. So if I'm Rudiger from a footballing standpoint, stay at Chelsea, play under the coach, play in the system that has made you, you know, this this guy who's in the conversation for for that spot, as you said. But I do have a feeling that the family side of things, the money side of things, you know, to go and get a massive five-year contract to the PSG or a Madrid or, or a Munich, etc., could be too tempting for a guy who, as you say, has had some really, really nasty injury history. Um, and that contract could be, could be the thing that really uh, sets his family up, you know, for generations. Well, yeah, we had a question here from Joel asking about Tuchel's backup formation or personnel switch. Uh, we did get to that a little earlier in the episode. Uh, we had Alex asking if Barkley and Baker's inclusions in the Dev Squad games, how detrimental is it? Who is suffering? How it affects the possible academy debuts? I think we'll talk we talk a little bit more about that with Phil in yeah. the Chelsea youth episodes that we have. But I think in general, it's not great for the players and it's not great no. for the academy players who potentially are going to get dispossessed uh, from time. Um, AJ asks, uh, when can we expect your next article on Wagon? <laughs> I think we should just tell him that this is the great opportunity to sign up for the London's Blue Podcast Patreon because they can get your weekly newsletter, amongst other things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I've I've stopped writing publicly for the time being. I mean, the newsletter um, actually will be finished up this weekend, so it will probably go live, I would say, maybe Wednesday uh, coming up after this release. But yeah, weekly, weekly newsletter from me, uh, covers loads of different things, Chelsea, a little bit music, a little bit film and pop culture, etc. Um, but it's the only place at the moment that I am uh, I'm writing. So, yeah, if you want to want to see articles on what's going on in Chelsea, some stuff on young players, history, etc. Um, yeah, please uh, feel free to sign up and and the, yeah, the letter comes probably between Tuesday and Thursday, depending on when Chelsea play and when I have the time to finish it up. So yeah, once a week, but it's uh, it's good content. So we had SP Beal asking, how do you actually get a season ticket? Do I need to take out a loan to accrue the points necessary? Which I think is a little tongue in cheek, but a little serious as well. And uh, it's not easy, Joe. That would be the, the big answer. <laughs> Well, I think you, you guys know the uh, the lengths that you had to go to to get tickets for Porto. It's not the uh, the most e- easy system. It's not a great system to navigate as well. So, when it comes to to season tickets, I think I think the the official answer is it's a waiting list and then you get a chance. But given how successful the club is at the moment, um, yeah, I don't see that happening for an awfully long period of time. And again, unless you. I don't know, you know, somebody in the box office or some other sort of slightly cheekier way of, of getting moved higher up the list. Although just one quick point in this before we go into the next one, I found quite funny. I don't know how true this is, but it, it did seem to be uh, quite amusing. Somebody uh, posted on Twitter that they were informed before the summer that they were 40,000th on the list to get season tickets at Spurs' new stadium. And by the end of the summer, they were able to buy three of them. So, I mean, we're not we're not quite in those dire straits now where uh, 40,000 people have turned down the opportunity to get a season ticket at Chelsea. So you might have to wait a bit for that. But yeah, it's it's not a great system. But as you say, with the stadium as it is, you know, those uh, those season tickets are, are like gold dust. I, I'm not surprised. Uh, we're going to round it out on this last one here that 
that you requested uh, that we particularly answer. We, we did have a lot of questions <laughs> around Callum and Ruben, and I think we want to do it more justice than adding it at the end of an episode yeah. because we, we do care a lot about both those players, uh, both personally <laughs> and also as, uh, as Chelsea players here in the side. But the question was from Zarley, which was, how has Tuchel implemented... No, sorry, uh, that was not the question. It was Jamal's. Who wins in a fight between Mason Mount and Kai Havertz? <laughs> and there's a whole lot of variables here, Joe. I'll let you take it in the way that you wanted to because you said this is the one we have to answer. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is for Jamal. He's, uh, I like him. He's, he's a really good guy. Um, I just thought this was just a funny question in the context of what everyone else is asking. Now, I'm led to believe that Mason Mount has some boxing in his family. I think I've mentioned this before, that he has... Um, some boxing and and in that respect if I was going to give like a serious answer I think Mount maybe has that sort of Portsmouth kind of scrapper vibe about him and maybe he could go there but on the other side of things whenever I see Kai Havertz on like an IG live or in the dressing room he's always a bit strange he's doing these weird faces and making weird noises I think that he just might have that sort of weird kind of psychological edge in the battle he's definitely got the reach advantage he's quite a bit taller than Mason um so maybe Mason has the technical side of thing but Kai maybe has the mental side of things where he is literally mental in this case and he is a bit peculiar so I think maybe he 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 weirds Mason out in some way maybe he sort of gets in his head um I don't know. If I go with Mason, then I'm obviously, uh, you know, xenophobic and a, and, and a Cobham, Cobham bias, etc. Um, uh, do you know what? Because because he's so strange, I think I think I'm going to go with Havertz. He has the reach and he's a bit peculiar. Plus, he might ride into the fight on a donkey. So I mean, he might also have that in his in his locker as well. Um, who do you think, Dan? This is a serious question. This is what the listeners want to know. Yeah, I, I was trying to figure out like what type of what, what type of fight are we talking about? That was is the other it, thing. Yeah, is it, <laughs> is it MMA? MMA, is it, you know, back alley? <laughs> is it bar brawl or pub brawl? Like, what, what, let's what's go. Let's go. Pub, let's go pub brawl. Pub brawl. We'll go pub brawl. <sighs> pub. Gosh, Mason, I, I, I've never seen Mason wear Stone Island, so maybe that counts against him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I I don't know if you you know we we've both had the pleasure of talking to to Tony Mount in the past, and uh, I would say just uh, seeing the way that he's uh, he's he's raised his son, uh, I, I don't think Mason would uh, back down from a fight in any regard. And, uh, we just we just don't have that relationship with Kai yet, so you got to go with your guy. And uh, so yeah, I'm going to go with Mason. <laughs> Easy. Yeah, actually, if we're going with a bar fight, then I have to switch it to the English side of things. I think Mason will have a bit more experience in that growing up in Portsmouth. Uh, no, I'm joking. I just say that because I went to university in Southampton and we have a rivalry with them. So, um, but yeah, no, I think, uh, yeah, bar, bar, I'll go with, uh, I'll go with Mason. If Kai gets to bring a donkey to the fight, then maybe Kai edges it. <laughs> All and right. That, well, that, that is the a, that people wanted. That is a fun way to end this uh, first episode of it being called the Tinkerman, but second episode of the Blueprint. It's our monthly episode talking tactics, and now uh, trying to figure out fictional winners of inner squad Wait, battles. We get as regular. Well. <laughs> Every month we'll conclude with a who will win in a fictional fight. Oh, we, we should just ask people to queue up the every month we want a question now asking for the matchup of players and then the setting what are they competing at <laughs> right it could be anything maybe it's who wins in playing chess uh you know uh, who wins uh playing uh connect four with you know being <laughs> blindfolded um you know all these fun little scenarios we'd love to play them out for you at the end of these episodes but before we go joe any final thoughts yeah i'm i'm really looking forward to the, this next phase of games um you know, seven points on the opening three that we had. I thought was a fantastic return. 
Super looking forward to, to who plays against Villa. Um, we'd love to see Chalaba get another game, obviously, in terms of, of starting again. But I think for the moment, it's, it's uh, cities on the horizon, isn't it? I think that's going to be a very, uh, very interesting proposition and a telltale sign of where we are as a team. So, yes, always on Villa, but certainly I'm keeping a little bit of a side eye on the, uh, on the horizon with City. City fast approaching and, you know, we've had their number. And again, I don't feel bad about saying that publicly and being a, uh, uh, a jinx there, but we have had their number. So I'm curious as to how, how Pep responds and, and how Tuchel counters that. Well, I, for one, am looking forward to that as well. But that is going to wrap us up for this episode. So thank you for listening. Please rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts if you listen there. Even if you don't listen there, go do it for us because it helps people find the podcast. Give us comments on, on Twitter, Instagram. Let us know what you thought about this episode. But until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.